Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to episode 297 of the Family Medicine Rocks podcast for Thursday, March 14, 2013. On today's show, that's right, March Madness continues back on the show today. Coming up in just a few minutes, medical student Michael B. Moore from the Pacific Northwest will be joining me to discuss what it's like being a medical student these days. We'll also discuss his future as a family medicine doctor starting this summer. And finally, I'll share some thoughts on uh, Match Day 2013. What's that all about? I'll be uh, talking about that. All that coming up on episode 297 of the Family Medicine Rocks podcast starting right now. social media this is the family medicine rocks podcast i am your host my name is mike savilla your favorite family physician host what is this show about well i tell people this is social media through the eyes of a family physician i encourage you to check out my digital library of stuff at familymedicinerocks.com shout out to all the people follow me on twitter all eleven thousand. 632 people follow me on Twitter. Thank you so much for that. And also, shout out to everybody who likes the Facebook page for this show, all 761 of you. That's uh, facebook.com slash famedrocks. Today is Thursday, March 14, 2013. That's right. Happy Pi Day, everybody, especially to the geeks out there. If you don't know what that is, look it up. Just Google it. You're fine. You'll be fine. Uh, it is uh, 4 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, 1 p.m. Pacific. And uh, here at Family Medicine Rocks World Headquarters, it is uh, feels like 23 degrees Fahrenheit. That's right. Last weekend, uh, it got to uh, 65, and I think it was a bit higher than that as well. And then winter came back this week. <laughs> We're back in the... 20s and 30s but spring is coming that's what the uh, groundhog said right <laughs> how's your week going kids uh um everything's good uh, this way i got my haircut today follow me on twitter if you want to see that uh, what that is still fighting a cold uh this week so uh, thanks everybody for your well wishes out there it is uh, much uh, appreciated 
And thanks for your continued support of the show. Uh, very much appreciate that. As I say that often, uh, I'm humbled by uh, people who want to hear me blabber on and talk about stuff. Almost uh, 3,000 downloads of the show of the uh, past week. Uh, thank you so much uh, for that. Uh, very excited about uh, today's show. But next week, next week, March 21, 2013, um, I'm also excited to be uh, welcoming Dr. Jordan Grumet to the show. He's a blogger, longtime blogger, uh, and uh, his blog is called In My Humble Opinion, and uh, we'll be uh, specifically talking about a post called Stepping Out, and uh, um, it's a, a very interesting post. Uh, check that out. I believe it's from uh, February. And uh, the ending of this post is this. I'm stepping out of this broken system. What Want to know what happens next? Stay tuned. So maybe he'll be revealing that on this show coming up next week. But uh, just coming up in a, just a few minutes here uh, will be a medical student, Michael B. Moore. And he's a student at Pacific Northwest University of Health Sciences, very active on social media. Follow him on Twitter at uh, Michael B. Moore. Uh, his very impressive credentials, and uh, I'm excited to be talking to him about that. He's a writer and blogger at The Lancet Student, um, also a, a U.S. Army leader. Uh, been that for uh, uh, many years, and uh, if we have time, we'll get into that as well. He has training as a uh, physician's assistant, and, of course, he has some geek credentials as well. I uh, want to talk to him a little bit, if we have time, about the NASA tweet-up, what that all is all about. And uh, also on his credentials, he's a TEDx organizer. So uh, it'll be very exciting topics to uh, to uh, talk about during uh, our uh, our chat uh, today. And here's a little behind-the-scenes here tip, uh, kids. Uh, so we've never spoken on the phone before. This is o- only through social media. So as always out there, kids, uh, you will uh, be able to judge my interview skills on today's show. So it's going to be very exciting. But first, I do want to thank Blog Talk Radio for having me be a featured host on this network. Thank you so much for that. I've been a social media hobbyist since 2005. And if you're curious, yes, I am a real doctor. I am a family physician in full-time private practice, meaning I see patients in the hospital and in my office. Uh, here in beautiful but cold northeastern Ohio. So I will take my break, and after the break, I will be Michael B. Moore. We are talking about mid-student life, and and uh, I was looking forward to being a family physician. You're listening to the Family Medicine Rocks podcast, the unofficial podcast of the Family Medicine Revolution. Just Google FM Revolution for more details, and also a proud member of the ProMed Network of Podcasts. You can get there by going to ProMed network.com and we'll be right back Family Medicine's leading voice in social media in my own mind. This is the Family Medicine Rocks podcast. And on with us, uh, 
We have uh, somebody I've been wanting to get on the show for a while, uh, Michael B. Moore, medical student. Thank you so much for the time, sir. My pleasure. <laughs> How are you doing out there uh, today? Uh, not too bad. I am sitting at a desk in a co-working space in Seattle, Washington, uh, talking to you. All right. Yeah, I saw your Facebook uh, pictures this morning. You're at uh, Pike's Place Market. I love uh, going there, and it uh, looks like you had a good time this morning. Yeah, exactly. Uh, this was admin time uh, this morning for my uh, preceptor. So um, being a fourth-year medical student, I took the privilege to not find anything else to do since my preceptor was off. So hopefully my That's dean cool. is not listening. No, so. no, I uh... – no, 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 nobody listens to the show. So you're, so you're <laughs> no, that's not true, actually. But <laughs> the, uh, um, but uh, no, I uh, um, uh, I knew I wanted to do this in a in a nice location and be able to do a couple of other meetings at the same time. So this worked out really well. So um, well, great. This is uh, this is actually a nice little soundproof booth that they have here at this co-working space called Hub Seattle, and Hub is a uh, it's a series of uh, basically entrepreneurship workshops or laboratories that are around the world. And the first one I was actually in was in England. And then when they started one here, I signed up because for, you know, you can pay a small fee. And then for a couple of days a month, you have a place to come and network, do meetings and work with people that work in technology or maybe with other entrepreneurship activities. So it's it's actually yeah, I, definitely a good deal. I'm going to move out there. <laughs> <laughs> I see. I see all this great stuff of people tweeting out there and uh, doing social media stuff, and uh, it's, it's exciting what's happening out there where you're at. Well, and uh, I'm very excited about the idea of social entrepreneurship, where a company, you know, of course, has to keep the lights on and make money and pay its employees, but they also have a, a an acknowledged social mission. And uh, I think there's a lot that healthcare can kind of understand and, and, and utilize from this movement, if that makes any sense. Because at its best, I mean, that's what healthcare is. We, you know, we're not in it necessarily, you know, to become millionaires per se, but we're in it to, to help people. I mean, yes, we expect to get fairly compensated for what we do, and we expect to be able to pay our nurses and our techs and all of the other people that help us deliver great care, you know, a, a livable, reasonable wage. But, you know, I, you know, I don't think healthcare at its best is when we're milking a dime out of every single thing that we do over trying to take good care of patients. I mean, that, you know, I mean, that that's just my opinion, but it, it's a thought. Well, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and, and we can um, dive into a lot of this stuff uh, during our chat uh, today. But where I, where I did want to start is that uh, um, I know that you, you've been tweeting out for the last uh, few weeks of be, being excited about uh, uh, family medicine and uh, the, the FM revolution and all that stuff. Uh, um, why don't I just start there? Why, why, why did why did you choose family medicine and your specialty? What's cool about family medicine? What do you like about it? Oh, um, I think the 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 number one thing about family medicine is the impact that you can make in uh, the lives of patients and the and the and the work of a community. Um, uh, I family medicine is is very hard because you know every day you're you're getting hit with these you know these problems in primary care that are really system problems that you know are really being inflicted on the patients and on the healthcare providers 
And um, I, I think one of the ways that we deal with that is we we don't abandon primary care. We don't abandon family medicine. We don't abandon those things. So definitely part of the reason why I'm in family medicine is that I'm on a mission for that. But I mean, the reality is, is that when I interact with patients, when I sit down with them, when I sit down with families, when I work with them in a wide variety of environments, whether it's surgery, uh, critical care, the emergency room, or in the clinic, I, I I want to know what's going on with the whole patient. I want to help the whole patient and the whole family have better health. And I don't want to just put Band-Aids on stuff. I want to make everything better. And that, to me, is the essence of what, you know, a family physician does. And so that, for me, is the reason why family medicine is the the place for me. So, uh, you know, that's, I mean... There's a little bit of starry-eyed idealism in that, but there's also a lot of practical aspects of this is where I fit in, this is what I feel comfortable doing, this is what I like doing. So does that make sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and when I hear people, um, you know, talk about that and talk about our specialty, you know, there's usually, or maybe, um, um, you know, somebody or, or, or a group of people who have influenced you um, in, in the past. Um, uh, are there physicians in your family or, or there, do you just have just great mentors uh, in your medical training to kind of guide you towards primary care and family medicine? I mean, well, first of all, the mentors that, I, that I've that i had in, in, in medicine have been amazing. Um, uh, Colonel uh, Mike Oshiki, who is a family medicine physician, uh, former uh, uh, group's uh, surgeon for the First Special Forces Group, who's now the Division Surgeon for 7th Infantry Division. You know, David Brown, who is the Chief of Primary Care Sports Medicine at, at Madigan, and now he's at uh, at Fort Campbell. Um, you know, John Edwards, my my future program director, Colonel John Edwards. I mean, I've I've been so blessed in the Army to have so many great mentors, both on the MD side and on the DO side, that really have just uh, really shown what servant leadership means in terms of family medicine uh, and in medicine in general, and really the epitome of of just brave, uh, conscientious, uh, dedicated physicians. And so, I mean, those are the people who really inspired me to go back, you know, and you know, go back to medical school as an army physician at 46, and come back out and be an intern at 50. I mean, those are the people that really inspired me to do that, to to jump in and make. Uh, you know, an even bigger difference and an even bigger impact, you know, hopefully in the future. So, I mean, I, I could I could probably spend the rest of the, your show mentioning people <laughs> that, have, that have made me do this. I mean, that's one of the things that, um, I mean, I, my medical school experience is that, yes, I get, I'm getting a lot of recognition now for graduating from medical school, but all I can think about is all of the people that helped me get here, you know, and, you know, really made it possible for me to go to medical school. And I think every single medical student is that way. We all recognize that it was that organic professor or lab assistant that got them through the course. It was the, you know, the physics professor who did extra recitations so you would understand the equations so you could pass labs. You know, it was, um, you know, the, the mentors that you had, you know, when you were choosing to go to medical school. I mean, all the you're kind of at the very end of a sphere of so many people that are stacked up behind you making that 
um, making that possible for you. And for me, it's just impossible not to be just overwhelmingly grateful for that. So, um, but yeah, I mean, if 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 uh, if people haven't figured it out already, I mean, uh, <laughs> I guess it you would be. I don't like using labels, but uh, a, a non-traditional type of student. Yeah. Uh, and um, I'd like to explore that a little bit. I mean, I, I, I know that uh, that you you, you you put you identify yourself and and you are a member of the United States Army. Thank you for your service for that. Um, uh, can you talk a little bit about how are there people in the uh, in uh, the military service in your family? How did you get an influence to to participate and join the army? Well, um, ironically, my, I, I came from a Navy family, so when I joined the army, it was a, a bit of a shock. But uh, uh, to make a long story short, I was um, I went I w- you know had three years of college under my belt, was getting ready to take out some loans to pay for the last year, and um, you know I was a, a a math and philosophy major and was not really uh, you know. Uh, looking at jobs that were available that would help me pay off the student loans were really not, you know, didn't look that good even in the 80s. So um, I joined the Army for a short period of time to get some money for college, and I, I basically had a knack for leadership. I I joined up. I um, rapidly made uh, sergeant, and then, you know, right after that went to officer candidate school. Um, you know, did airborne ranger, pathfinder, jumpmaster, training, air assault training, and all of those things, and was an infantry officer, uh, and did that for a couple of years. Uh, And then I just, you know, got caught up in being so good in the Army at what I did that, you know, I completed my bachelor, my first bachelor's degree, you know, you know, in the, in the evening, did a degree completion program. And, and then, uh, you know, at some point decided with my, you know, technical background that I wanted to go to flight school. So I went to flight school in, uh, you know, when I was a first lieutenant and captain and then flew um, in the Air Cavalry in Korea and then with the 82nd Airborne Division, and that's when Desert Shield and Desert Storm happened. So I was commanding an Air Cavalry troop at that time. Wow. And uh, I came back from that, and... I was put in my additional specialty, which at that point was computers, because I had a math background. So I was sent to some technical training, you know, run in partnership uh, with, uh, you know, several tech universities at that point in the mid-90s, and then went to Germany. But instead of doing any technical stuff, I basically managed contracts and bought computers. And it really wasn't what I saw myself doing, even though I was working with some pretty amazing things at that point. We were developing some of the first mobile Internet systems. That was the very beginning of, you know, moving the Internet from strictly military applications into the civilian community in the mid-'90s. So there was a lot of very exciting technical things that I got to be involved with, and I got to use some of those skills later as a civilian. But... um, it really wasn't what I wanted to do in the Army. I was definitely more of a muddy boot soldier and, you know, <laughs> hanging out and, you know, at I was, you know, I was at the, the headquarters in Europe and basically, you know, rubber stamping documents. And it just, yeah. it wasn't, it wasn't what I saw myself doing in the Army, even though I know it's a vital thing that needs to be done. And I, the PA that I worked with during Desert Shield, Desert Storm in the 82nd encouraged me to look into looking into being a PA because he knew I had an interest in things like athletic training and, you know, helping people do better on their PT tests and working as a, like, an, you know, having additional 
you know, volunteering to have additional medical skills to supplement the medics in case of mass casualty situations. So he knew I had a skill in all those things, and that's how I ended up coming off active duty and going to a civilian uh, PA school in West Virginia. So I went to Alderson Broaddus College in Philippi, West Virginia, and did my clinical uh, time at West Virginia University in Morgantown. Uh, and then I went into the National Guard and flew medevac um, during that time period. Good old-fashioned medevac. What, what did you enjoy about your uh, physician's assistant training? Was, was it that clinical aspect, or, or, or specifically was it sports medicine, that, those type of topics? You know, actually what I really enjoyed even at that point was going down, and I did a lot of extra volunteer work at the community healthcare clinic, so I did a lot of – there, there was, um, uh, you know, basically a CHIP program, an early CHIP program where we did uh, health and wellness screenings and did some acute care for – for, uh, pediat- for the pediatric population that was uninsured. And then we also did the same thing on the OBGYN side. So I volunteered and did a lot of extra work like that. So I really liked the community health rural clinic thing. And I did a rural health fellowship cool. during uh, my PA training uh, that I really enjoyed all those things, but I also enjoyed doing critical care and surgery. And actually my first jobs out of PA school were in that my first job, you know, at was for a short period of time at UTV and U, U, uh, UTMB in Galveston, and then after that I got a job in a uh, cardiac surgery practice in Abilene and did that for a couple of years and then moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico, um, again still in the National Guard as a PA, but I was working at a you know more. Uh, more of a secondary or tertiary care cardiac surgery practice at that point as a PA and also doing critical care as a PA when 9-11 happened. And then wow. when 9-11 happened, my, you know, I was mobilized and my civilian career was, you know, disrupted, to put it bluntly. Um, and so mobilized for a short period of time to support requirements within the United States and then came back from that, found another job, and then got mobilized again after having that job for like six months, uh, you know, because at that point during the pre-surge and during the surge, people were getting mobilized. Even in the National Guard, they were getting mobilized every other year to be deployed if you were, you know, fit for deployment and ready to go. So, um, and I just fell in that category, you know, unfortunately. So uh, on my third mobilization, um after my second tour in Iraq, I um, I ended up uh, just volunteering to go back on regular army duty at that point, and uh, because you know I, I it was very difficult for me to try and balance a civilian career or not, and I was just assigned to the Department of Family Medicine at Madigan Army Medical Center at Fort Lewis, but I worked as a a unit as a as a PA out with the troops in a unit. So, and that's how we generally do things as a PA. Um, you'll be assigned actually out with the unit, but you'll be credentialed through the local, you know, healthcare facility. So, um, wow. <laughs> so, uh, and that Quite was kind story. of in that whole period that I, uh, you know, uh, 
that kind of during that whole, you know, that last, during that, that second time that I was in Iraq, which the first time was Desert Shield, Desert Storm. The second time was actually, you know, the 2004 to 2005 time period, um, yeah. a little over a year, you know, for right after the invasion. And uh, that was when the time period that I decided that I wanted to go back to medical school. One of my mentors just looked at me and she said, you need to go to medical school. And I took the MCATs when I was in Iraq. Uh, not when I, I actually took them in Qatar, uh, not in. You took the MCAT in Qatar? Oh, my yes. God. So, yeah, I flew out. <laughs> I flew out from wow. Balad and flew out from Balad and, and went down, slept on uh, the exam bed in the little ER at the the central command, you know, command post aid station and uh, uh, got up the next morning and they drove me out in an armored suburban to the uh, the medical school in Qatar and I took off my helmet and took off my body armor and cleared my weapon and handed it all over to the driver and grabbed my two wow. number two pencils and my passport and, oh my God. <laughs> and went in and <laughs> took my MCATs and I was the I was the only American there so it was very wow. interesting. Man, so wait, Phil. Uh, so yeah, back up a little bit. So I mean, so so as you're, you know, you're thinking about even applying to medical school, you know, and you, know, you would be in your 40s and and maybe even being an intern in your 50s. You know, what's going through your mind and saying, do I want to put myself through this for potentially, depending on your specialty, another 10 years of my life? Right. Um, I. And that's a really good question. And, you know, and honestly, there's uh, I mean, you ask in a very polite way. I mean, during orientation, when I showed up to medical school, one of my fellow students asked me point blank in front of the entire class, you know, uh, don't you feel bad uh, for taking a slot, uh, a medical school slot away from someone who is younger, who could potentially practice a lot longer than no way. Yeah, well, and the guy was the guy was smoking as he did this, and I said, "Listen, I'm only 20 years older than you. You're smoking. Statistically, I'm going to bury you, sucker. So you shouldn't really be asking those questions." But you know, that was just my own gut response. The, uh, but uh, you know, but I mean, you you ask it in a polite way, and there's other people that ask it in very. I mean, I've had other people just say, "You're crazy." You know, well, why are you know why are you doing this? And you know, and you know, I, you know, uh, maybe I am crazy, but I'd like to think it's a good kind of crazy. That oh um, sure, no, I'm, but, I'm with but you. But literally, but but literally, I think you know, as much as I love being a mid level and how important I think mid levels are to delivering good health care. I mean, don't get me wrong, I don't. I, I it may sound strange going through medical school. I still think PA being a PA is one of the best freaking jobs in medicine because sure. you have, I mean, it's you, you're hands on with the patient, you know, you get tangible feedback, you know, in, in the best jobs that I've had, you get great feedback about what, what you're doing, right, what you're doing wrong, you know, and you know, how much you're helping patients and how much you're not helping patients. I don't think patients are as on guard with you as much as a PA that I have found that they have been as a medical student, you know, already there's more of a barrier you know, that's kind of, a, you know, building between patients and physicians that I don't think is there between patients and PAs sometimes, if that makes any sense. So I think there's a lot of great things about mid-levels, and we bring a lot to the table. But in order for me to make the kind of impact that I need to make, and especially in order to really help mid-levels, 
I really need to be a physician to do those things. And I'm, so I'm willing to, to do the work and make the sacrifice to have the credibility to say, this is what we need out of mid-levels. This is what we need out of physicians. This is how we can design better teams in healthcare. Uh, and I'm the one who can speak to that, not someone who has a theoretical knowledge of being what, it, what it's like being a PA, because I was a PA for 12 years and it's a distinguished fellow of the academy. So, I mean, it's not – I've got a real idea of what it's like to be a PA working in primary care as opposed to a theoretical one. So I'm hoping that I can add a lot to that conversation in the future because I really truly have gone through both routes, and and I'm so vocal that people can't get me to shut up. So uh, my uh, my uh, my guest on the line is uh, uh, Michael B. Moore. Follow him on Twitter, Michael B. Moore, student at Pacific Northwest University of Health Sciences. Uh, and let's kind of shift a little bit here. So, I mean, you're at a, um, and you already referred to this at DO school, an osteopathic school. Uh, what was the thought process um, as far as a DO school versus an allopathic MD school, or was there one? Well. Um, Honestly, a couple of my mentors when I was, uh, you know, during Operation Iraqi Freedom, during my time in Iraq, um, were DOs. And, you know, in terms of the musculoskeletal injuries and, you know, uh, you know, treating people without uh, medications, without narcotics, because, you know, even we're limited giving out a lot of Motrin. If people are going to be in a situation where they could, you know, you know be bleeding from trauma, we really want to avoid even giving them Motrin or naproxen you know, because it's going to affect their platelet function. So, I mean, so uh, I really got my eyes open to the effectiveness of manipulative therapy. I mean, so, I mean, I think the first thing is, is that I was a fan. I saw it work. Um, I used it. I was taught how to use it. Uh, It was effective. I mean, it certainly, I mean, it doesn't replace, it it complements what we do in traditional medicine, but there's a real role for it in in my mind. So um, I'm a, I'm a fan of manipulative therapy. I think it 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 has its place and can really help us deal um it, it with the patients in a more holistic sense. Um and the other thought is that um I really really like that many of the new DO schools are taking really innovative ways at doing education, looking at different places to get their medical students other than just the traditional path. Uh, Because I think that kind of variety and that kind of depth of knowledge about people and about different situations is really important when it comes to delivering health care. So it's... um, you know, uh, that was the other part. It wasn't just the manipulative theory. I mean, I think that that's great. And I I think... um, I think if you're going to be a DO, that's part of what being a DO is, and it's important for you to understand that and be intellectually honest about how you use that. But I think the other part was is that there's a lot of DO schools that are being very aggressive in in trying to to get new models of medical education, and you know, and they're doing it in real ways that'll work that won't be you know as the result of a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation grant that they'll burn through the money and then they'll go back and do it the way they've been doing it for the past 50 years. You know, not disparaging anybody, but, you know, sometimes that's what happens when you parachute in money 
and and set up a new model of medical education. But if you say, listen, you've got limited resources like what we did in Yakima, and the community is going to fund the school, then we have to figure out new ways of doing this. And we have to make it better, and we have to pass our boards, and we have to do all these things differently. And let's make medical education better at the same time. That, to me, is just exciting about being a DO as all of the other historical aspects of being a DO. And hopefully that made sense But because I've been trying oh, yeah. to think about this for sure. a while and, and write for it because, you know, I want to write a post for Wing of Zoc about that, about, you know, how small can be good when it comes to reform. Because I think, you know, when you have a great big system like some of the big state-supported medical schools are, I mean, they've got 50 years of installed, you know, procedure and people that they've got to change to get stuff done. Whereas if you're, if you've got a small community responsive medical school, you know, all you have to do is just have a, a, a dean with a vision and things happen. And that's what we have at, you know, PNWU. We've got a, you know, a dean and a faculty that have a vision to make this better and do it differently and to do it efficiently. And, you know, and that's all you need. You don't have to convince your political base to do that. You just do it. So now I get um, I, I get a lot of uh, uh, questions from listeners about what it what it's like being a medical student uh, these days. The the MD uh, matches tomorrow and, and the DO match already happened. Um, can you describe a little bit to the audience as far as you know how you came to select where you're going to be going to residency? Did you go there? To, did you do rotations there? Did you? Um, did you did you know people there? Can you describe a little bit about that process? Because that's a little bit for people outside of medicine. It's kind of a mystery. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I think it's, sometimes it's a mystery ask too. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't. I, it's it's. Uh, but that you know. But that's a little bit of gallows humor. Um, it's the match is is bizarre. Um, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I, you know, it's, you know, I, you know, with no disrespect intended, I think it is, it's a horribly demoralizing thing that I have seen my fellow medical students go through. I mean, I am, I, I count my lucky stars every day that I went through the military match and had a relatively transparent process and had, I, and, you know, the, one of the good thing about the military is that you like it or hate it, there are rules. And the rules are the rules, and you follow the rules. I mean, that's just the way you make big organizations like that work. Uh, yes, there are exceptions. Yes, there are things that can be adjusted as you go along. But I get the feeling, based on talking with people about the regular matches, uh, that you know it, it's really hard to know what you're up against. It's hard to know where you fit in the entire thing. You don't ever get any good quality feedback from anyone about whether or not you're competitive for a certain spot. I mean, there will always be people that are ringers for a particular program, and they'll know, but I'm talking about the vast majority of students out there. I mean, they just don't know where they may end up going. Uh, and it's very stressful for them. It's very hard for them, and it it really disempowers them from the get-go, um, you know, and I think that we do that in medicine at our own at our own peril. You know, we we put so much effort into trying to find humanistic, caring, thoughtful, people-oriented medical students, and we're even changing the MCATs and the pre-medical curriculum to reflect that. 
but then we still run them to the meat grinder of the first two years of medical school, and then we run them run them to the meat grinder of third year, and then we completely disempower them when it comes to trying to select where they want to go, and then we wonder why they end up, you know, hardened at the end of that, you right. know. So I I think that. You know, it's it's something. I'm glad you asked the question because I think it's something we we need to talk about. Um, I, I get you know, and I'm sure I will get hate mail on Twitter from saying this. You know, because people I've, I've basically had attending physicians say it is not your job to say anything about the match. You derogatory <laughs> because you're a medical student and what you need to do is shut up. You know, I got an wow. email a couple of weeks ago that said it's inappropriate for a medical student to have nine thousand Twitter followers. Because you shouldn't really? have that kind of voice and impact. Really? And it's like, wow. you know, and all I could do was the Steve Martin, well, excuse me, you know. Exactly. I, I have 9,000 Twitter followers, and if I even thought about tweeting something untoward, I'm going to immediately get called out on it. I mean, I, I can't imagine a more squeaky clean Twitter account than mine. I think I've tweeted one picture of a beer in 30 plus thousand tweets, you know, and no body parts, you know, <laughs> so, so it's like, you know, it's, you know, but the, to criticize someone for just having a voice, I think is, is symptomatic of some of the problems that we have in healthcare. And I think part of that is that as things are so difficult in healthcare, that uh, that people get afraid, and when they get afraid, they lash out. And I think that that's part of it. But um, but I, I think that um, I think the hardest thing about trying to explain the match is that it is a mystery. It's a riddle wrapped inside a mystery anyway, and it's really hard for people that are in it to even get their heads around it, much less try and explain it to anyone. But the one thing that I would tell to other people, you know, that are outside of medicine and what it's like to be a medical student is that it's just, you know, uh, it feels arbitrary and capricious sometimes. And that's very, you know, just like it is for anybody else. Uh, that's disempowering and disheartening. So and hopefully that wasn't too much of a meta answer for you. But, oh, no, you know, I think I, it's just, I get it's that just question a lot too. Yeah, I get that question too a lot about the match. And it's just like it's so hard to. It, to, it, uh, explain. It, it, even you know, unless you've been through it, I mean, uh, you know, even if you've been through it with a significant other, like I have, you right. just like crud. I mean, yeah. it's still it's not the same as like when you're the one pushing the button on ERAS and you're the one logging on at midnight to see where you're going. You know that it just it's it's tough. So, I mean, I think the other thing that's hard to explain even to even amongst medical students themselves is the whole problem with step one and part one because that the content for that exam is exploding you know year by year and even i don't know what the class of 2015 2016 are going to are going through when they're confronting step one because there's more stuff on it than it was a couple of years ago and there's already i mean the amount of detail that you have to cover for step one is so um, impossible to get your brain around that even that seems – I mean, you get to the point where a normal human being, even a smart one, can't get their brain around it. And it really – you know, to cover everything that you need to know for step one 
is I mean it's doable and we all do it in order to pass the exam but you know you're testing such a small fragment of, you know because you've only got one that one day to do it you're testing just such a small fragment of what that knowledge base is that I think that is also it's not the fact that you're studying hard and you're going in and having to take a hard test that's not demoralizing but when you're having to take a test that is so arbitrary in what's covered during that six-hour period compared to what you studied, that, I think, is disempowering. And it really shapes the medical student experience in a lot of ways. So, and, I mean, again, that's very theoretical and meta, and and I apologize for that. And I've got to figure out a better, I've got to figure out a better way to explain that. But it's, it's just that's the other form. Those are the two formative things that really strike me, especially as an experienced person who's passed PA boards, who's passed other tests, who's done well on NCAT, SAT, GRE, and things like that. I mean, um, the you know, part one, step one were, you know, were a completely different week from all that other testing. And it's hard to explain to someone who hasn't been, been through it again because, you know, and then on top of that, we have people teaching us for that test that have never even taken it, and they don't know what we're <laughs> up against. You know, that's true. That is that is true. So, um, my guest on the line is uh, uh, Michael B. Moore. Follow him on Twitter. Student at Pacific Northwest University of Health Sciences. Uh, and let's kind of switch gears. Let's talk about some fun stuff here. Let's talk social media. Uh, oh yeah, you, uh, my favorite thing. Can you share- can you share a little bit about you know how did you get started? I mean, you have all these Twitter followers. Uh, uh, when, how did you get started? When did you get started? How, when did you know that this was going to be a powerful medium for communication? Oh, uh, that's a fantastic question. Uh, you know, I actually, um, I actually got started. Um, gosh, back in 2000, I think I created my account back in 2005 um, on Twitter. And I think it was November, November 2005. And, you know, and I, I played around with it a little bit, you know. I posted – I mean, definitely I have been a part of the bad poetry wing of Twitter for a long time. Uh, you know, I may have been like one of the bad founding presidents of – You know, the bad haiku oh. wing, actually. The, oh, I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the president of the bad of the bad haiku thing. And I there used to play go. around with like, you know, like some of the early text-to-speech things like Jot and like yeah, literally oh, yeah, like – Getting yeah. up in the morning and doing a haiku and like yeah. having having Jot do it and translate it and post it automatically onto Twitter for me. I played around with stuff like that, you know. And maybe I think people at that point just followed me just because it was like a train wreck. I mean, it was like you can't turn your you can't turn your eyes away. What the, what, what is this guy going to do next? You know, and it was pretty bad. Like there was one of my tweets back from that time that I've got a print that I screen capped that it was kind of like I had the tweet, I had the the haiku that I wrote, and what. Jot actually translated out of my words was a better haiku than what I actually wrote, and it was like the the freaking machine's a better poet than I am. So, <laughs> so I mean, so that's kind of when I got started. I just played around with it and stuff like that. So I had a pretty large base. I mean, at that point, like five six hundred followers when I started medical school of people that I did genuinely interact with, you know, like. Um, uh, uh, like Stephanie Quo and some other people that are like, you know, fairly large, I mean, fairly large personas on Twitter, or at least established personas on Twitter, you know, or very early with like following and interacting with Kevin MD, uh, with Kevin Foe and stuff. So it was like, sure. you know, exactly. you know, so I, I was there. And then when I started, 
really, as I started to get buffeted during the first semester of of medical school, kind of like in the first week or two, I started tweeting as a medical student and saying, you know, and it was very respectful and very, but just observations about the medical school life. And started tweeting a lot of links and tried to really have good targeted curated links and, and, and it just, and did that and immediately started gaining followers right and left, you know, you know, thousand, two thousand, three thousand, four thousand. And I and then that, the other thing that I'm really on fire for is science and technology education and breaking down not just gender divides in that, but um, socioeconomic divides in um, science and technology education. Because, you know, there's also if you live in a good neighborhood, male or female, you're you've got a better chance at getting a science and technology education than if you're living on the wrong side of the tracks male or female. So that it, we talk a lot about getting women into STEM education, but I also think there's a real looming problem in terms of socioeconomic divide in education in that as well. And that's something I kind of focus on in my tweets. And, and so I, I got involved with that quite a bit. And so what do you, uh, uh, what, what do you tweet about now? Similar topics then or, or have, really, have you shifted at all or? No, it's still, it's still basically uh, a lot of science and technology, uh, you know, NASA-related, uh, education-related, STEM-educated, a lot of TEDx stuff and a lot of TED stuff because I've been very involved with them over the past couple of years. And then the medical education stuff and the medical student stuff, you know, to a certain extent, veteran and, uh, you know, wounded warrior tweets as well. But that's, you know, everything that's kind of listed in my profile are things that I try and and focus and tweet on about. And stuff. So, how, how did you uh, get get involved with the Lancet student? And for people who don't know what that is, what can you explain a little bit what that is? Well, basically, uh, a couple of years ago, the Lancet really wanted to increase their their outreach to students globally. So they had a, a worldwide nomination process where they nominated, you know, people that they thought would be good writers or bloggers uh, from all over, and. I got nominated in that process. I was invited to submit an essay and, you know, basically a blog post. And I submitted, you know, I submitted a blog post and then they asked me to select three and then they asked me to write about what went on in medical school that day. And after all of that process, they had selected out of, you know, a couple of hundred people, medical students around the world, they had selected five of us myself from the U.S., someone from Australia, someone from Argentina, someone wow. from uh, Malta, which wow. Malta is a big medical force in in Europe that I, really? I did not realize that until I got picked I didn't up. Know that but, either. Well, huh. the, the, like the, not, the night hospital chairs during the Crusades all the way through, you know. Sure, sure. So it's, and then uh, And then from England, of course, from the U.K., and so we all wrote, you know, a couple of posts a month during, and it started during my third year of medical school. But it was basically a competitive process that boiled down to I was the medical student selected from the U.S. And and I feel bad because the person that I was in the finals against, you know, was a medical student from Harvard who blogs for the Scientific American, who is about a thousand times the writer that I will ever be, you know, uh, fantastic writer, very smart woman, and. Uh, but, you know, I was the one who kind of – that was the voice that they wanted from the U.S. And uh, so I wrote for a year, and uh, that's all archived onto the blog. 
and then I went to London for a month in June and July of uh, 2012 and spent uh, a my first fourth year rotation doing a medical communications elective with the Lancet editorial staff and writing wow. there in London. So, That's awesome. so I actually, and then I, I wrote, I wrote, uh, you know, for the hard copy, you know, I basically, the first day I was there, I sat down and wrote news, you know, for, you know, I wrote, you know, I wrote for that week's journal, you know, I immediately like wrote, like 300 words for that that were broken up into various projects. Because if you look at the the structure of the Lancet, there's like a news section where they highlight news items. My area was like India, so that's what I did. <laughs> and uh, the um, and then uh, there's long and short leaders, which are basically editorials or review articles about current events in the news. So like they might write a long leader about the. Uh, you know, the ACA, for example, in the U.S. So they may talk about a, a, a recent issue. Glaxo, the GlaxoSmithKline case was very big at that point when I was over there. So there were several of the, of the long and short leaders were about that. We discussed that, for example. So And so we, I, would, I would just be sit in the editorial meeting, like, and uh, Richard Horton, I would, like, sit next to Richard Horton, who's the editor-in-chief of The Lancet, who is – you know, a legend to me. And he would like, he would look at me and say, Mike, what do you think? And it was like, and I would just feel so bad because it's like, you're a genius and I, you're asking what I think. I'm, I'm, I feel so sorry for you. <laughs> but Those no, great it, was, though, you know, it, just like, it is. I mean, I mean, I they really challenged me and they really made me, they, that really made me feel like I could do, I, I, I did the right thing by going to medical school because sure. I knew that I had a different voice. I knew I could make an impact. I knew I could do those things, and it would, and it was a very it was it was challenging but validating at the same time. So that's now, how question, I got with uh, that. A, a question that I get a lot, a question that you probably get a lot, is you know you know Mike, you know I, how do you balance all the time? I don't have the time to do social and be a medical student or a resident or an attending physician or all that kind of stuff. Um, when people ask you the time question, how do you balance? you know, your social media time with your regular life. What, what do you tell them? How do you do it? Well, I think, um, I mean, and that's a, again, that's a great question. I think that the first thing is, is that um, if you're a physician or you're a medical student, you're, you're a smart, dedicated person whose voice needs to be out there. And there are ways to share things that you think are interesting, things that you bring to the education, to, to other people, thought, others' thought processes that you can just build into the normal reading, the normal journal reading, the normal news reading that any provider should be doing on a daily basis to kind of keep up with what's going on. Uh, for example, I use, um, uh, like, read. Uh, I use... Uh, Read by uh, QXMD. That is, it's a journal. It syncs in with my medical journal account at my library, and okay. it creates like a Zeit, you know, like a Zeit-like magazine for me of things that I'm interested in in healthcare, new things in primary care, new things in emergency medicine, new things in systems management between emergency medicine and primary care for communities. And it filters all those out. And then I can immediately tweet or Facebook those out with a little comment with very little effort. And I think when you recognize that when you get involved in the conversation, even for a short period of time that doesn't add more than five minutes to your day, you know, at most when you're doing your normal reading and other interaction activities, you know, in terms of like CME, if you just share an observation about what you're doing, I mean, that adds to the conversation 
and that's a huge value-added prospect for any of us as thinking healthcare providers. So that's probably the big tip is to build it into what you already do. Don't do anything special for social media. Just be yourself. Talk about what you think you're interested in. Think about talk. Share what's important with you. If you if we all do a little bit of that, it's not an overwhelming effort, but the payoffs are huge for all of us. You know, you asked me the question about the defining moment of when I thought that social media could be really important in medicine, and that was when I was sitting in OBGYN lecture, and there was a question that they asked the lecturer, and the lecturer did not know. I put it on Twitter. And the director of maternal fetal medicine at the University of Jakarta tweeted me back in 30 seconds. Jakarta. Wow. So, <laughs> you know, I don't know what she was doing up in the middle of the night, probably what every other maternal fetal medicine doctor does, watching exactly. strips or something. But, you know, <laughs> the, but the power, I mean, it was just like, you know, it, it just hit me that, oh, my God, someone just tweeted me literally on the other side of the planet an answer that one of my classmates asked that the lecturer did not know the answer to with a link to Medline. I'm like, what the heck? You know? (laughs) So that's a great story. (laughs) So, I mean, and and, I mean, then obviously that is important. That is really, really, I mean, that's really important. So, uh, but, so yeah, let me. Uh, I guess on the line here is uh, Michael B. Moore. Uh, follow him on Twitter, uh, and um, it's obviously Michael B. Moore. And, and in our closing moments here, I, I, there's two more topics that I want to. Uh, I'm very curious about. One is uh, your fascination with NASA, and the second one is <laughs> I do want to talk about uh, TEDx a little bit. But but what's your sure. deal with NASA? Has that always been kind of a fascination for you? Well, I mean. Uh... Gosh, what what kid that grew up in the seventies and eighties didn't want to grow up to be a shuttle astronaut? And, oh, I you know, know, me too, man. And and it was and unfortunately, um, you know, I went to flight school, military flight school, so I knew astronauts. I mean, I had uh, one of my IPs during flight school went on to become a, a an astronaut. So I mean, that really. Uh, you know, uh, one of my drinking buddies from when I was a lieutenant went on to be an astronaut, uh, you know, Doug Wheelock. So, I mean, it's like, you know, uh, you know, things happen, you know, and <laughs> it, it, it's amazing what they do. And I, you know, I've always so I've always been a little bit of a NASA fanboy. And, oh, yeah. pick, you know, so um, I was invited, you know, by NASA to be part of a tweet up that they had other fans like me total geeks and dorks that were crazy about space flight. And yeah, I mean, that's, we, that, 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 that's, that's how I learned about the NASA tweet-up from, from your Twitter stream. And, and, you know, as we now sit during this interview, we're 3,000 miles away, but we were like 20 minutes from each other in, or in, you know, in central Florida, almost right. meet up there. But, but yeah, I'm curious about, you know, tell me about this, the, the, the NASA tweet-up. What's that experience like? Well, I'm curious about that. Well, you it's an amazing opportunity to like visit with astronauts and with the core leadership of the shuttle programs. And um, they really go out of their way to really show the inside of what it takes to get a shuttle through the process and off the ground to do it safely and how everyone has to work together as a team, you know, engineering, weather, systems management, safety, everything all works together. So you really get an inside look at – what it takes to do that. Um, and, uh, 
you know, and and like in my group, for example, when you're doing this, we also had the comic relief of having like Seth Green was one of my you know, one of my tent mates, you know, it's kind of like, and you know, he's like asking, you know, you know, so it's not only geeky and technical, but then you've got Seth Green there, you know, and we're, uh, we're going to see what the robot chicken guy says next. So the, uh, you know, and just seeing the power of that and, you know, and then part of it, I'm sure is a little bit of hero worship and a part of it is just the amazement at what we do, you know, what, we were able to do with the shuttle and and then finally you know just standing there three miles away from the shuttle as it goes up and bawling like a child screaming go is just amazing so you know yeah, that, that's one of my uh that's one of my regrets in my whole life but i i was uh, i was that was on my bucket list to see a shuttle launch i never got to see one in person that uh it's, i'm so bummed about that yeah, and you know, I could probably come back and speak for another hour just about what was important. You know, all the things I learned from NASA TweetUp that are applicable to other things. Uh, you know, in terms of what we need to do in science and technology and education. Uh, but that's like a whole nother. That, that's a whole nother cool. conversation. That's just amazing. Cool. Well, and then finally, yeah, finally with Ted. Ted, um, you know, Ted is amazing. Uh, I mean, uh, I think. Uh, I, like a lot of other people, when the TED website went live in 2005 and saw some of those first TED Talks, were just floored by the the idea of getting a bunch of smart people together and getting them to talk about issues and share ideas and and really you know really be open to each other and be open to the idea of being right, but being open to the idea of being wrong and sharing your ideas out there where people can kind of bat them down and work with them and share them and remix them. And uh, then uh, after TEDx started, which is the local TED movement, where you might have a TEDx in Cleveland or a TEDx in uh, Charlotte or a TEDx sure. in Miami or Seattle. And I got involved with TEDx Rainier, which is kind of a regional TED that covers the kind of the Seattle-Tacoma area and stuff. So um, the – um, I, I really, um, I think there's a lot of power in especially people in healthcare getting involved in those types of community activities because some of the best thoughts about how we can fix stuff are coming from those activities. Um, you know, where you're talking about, you're people who are talking about things like 23andMe, you know, and, you know, gathering information about the human genome and providing it in an open source database that's, you know, not subject to copyright for people to use and research and, and share and remix and help it to, you know, help us to use it to understand and make healthcare better, not just more expensive. You know, uh, all of those ideas are so powerful on the TED stage and in the TED groups that, you know, I think, you know, healthcare people need to be out there involved with that. And that's the reason why I think it's important for me to be involved with that. And that's the reason why I help organize TEDx events in my local community, you know, and help share that information and share that, you know, and, and share those events so that we can break out of that healthcare silo that we find ourselves in sometimes and really get out there and interact with the local community and, and try and get good ideas worth sharing, get them some traction and help help us kind of cross-fertilize those ideas uh, as opposed to just 
having a bright idea in the hospital that never goes anywhere or having a bright idea at the Chamber of Commerce that never goes anywhere. But if we got those two people together and got them thinking together, we could get a solution that would really work and be durable. So, so it's wow. I mean, that's uh, that's just awesome. Um, I'm going to let and, you just uh, you uh, gather some thoughts for for some for some closing thoughts. I'm going to ask you this question: uh, as far as social media, family medicine resolution, revolution, uh, why? Family docs, why physicians should be involved in social media. I'll let you uh, gather some thoughts on that. I do. I do want to give people your information again. I, it's been a great conversation with with Michael B. Moore. Follow him on Twitter, Michael B. Moore. He's a student at the Pacific Northwest University of Health Sciences. Very active on social media. Writer and blogger for the Lancet Student uh, and uh, <laughs> NASA Tweet Up guy. TEDx organizer. A lot of credentials. Uh, so uh, keep an eye on this, guys. It's going to be uh, very exciting to kind of see what happens. But uh, as we uh, kind of close up our conversation here, Mike, uh, you know, I mean, this show is about family medicine. This show, this show is about uh, social media. As we kind of close up um, our conversation, um, what advice do you give, you know, especially family docs that listen to this show, you know, or, or family medicine in general, why should they be involved in social media? Why is it important to you? Why should they be important to our specialty? In one word, I think it's empowerment. Um, social media is empowering. I mean, whether it's bringing down dictators in the Middle East or whether it's allowing people to speak out against large corporations, um, you know, social media provides power. It gives people who didn't have a voice a voice. And probably the most important reason why, as family physicians, we need to be involved in social media is that we've got a vested interest in, in people having a voice. Because when people have a voice, we're, we're going to thrive. What we provide as family physicians is, um, is empowering, is life-changing. Um, it's, you know, it's more than just primary care. You know, family medicine at its best can help people stay healthy as opposed to just treating all of their illnesses as well. And uh, we can look at the whole person. We should look at the whole person. And the only way that we can do that is by being part of a community and helping people be empowered. And social media really, for better or for worse, is, is part of that empowerment of the future. And so that's the reason why we should be involved. I mean, that's the reason why family medicine in particular should be involved. I mean, if you do a very narrow technical skill, you probably don't need to be involved in social media, you know, unless you're just sharing to a very small group. But if you're taking care of the health care of a community, you probably need to be involved in all aspects of that community. And social media is a big aspect of that community now, for better or for worse. So does that make sense? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, so absolutely. that's that's absolutely. that's the reason that that's the reason why I think especially. Um, uh, uh, you know, I think that especially is, you know, why family medicine should be in there. And, you know, and I really, you know, one thing that's kind of come clear in my mind is we keep talking about primary care over and over again. But, you know, family medicine to me is a little bit different. It's a little bit more holistic and it's a little bit more all-encompassing than just saying primary care, you know. And I'm probably going to get someone will send me a, a message about this that I'm, mixing up my definitions or something. But I think we could we would do better if we stepped back and thought about all of you know, all of family medicine, you know, 
being even more holistic and more expansive than just that primary care bit. So almost like thinking about it in terms of community medicine and the health of populations and health of communities. So, Yeah, I mean, uh, that's, a, that, 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 that's a great point that you bring up. And I've heard kind of both sides of it as far as, you know, being, you know, advocates for our specialty and then other people we should be more inclusive. And I see kind of both sides. And, and you know, what does the public really understand? Do they really, do they really understand what, the, what a family physician is? Um, I, I, I don't know, but I think they relate maybe a little bit better with primary care. There isn't a right answer here. Um, and I guess I use them a little bit interchangeably, and maybe I'm using it incorrectly as well. Uh, but it, it is good point that you bring up as far as, you know, maybe you know, we should really push more to say, hey, you know, we should you know, define ourselves as family physicians, as family medicine. Um, and, and then you know, when we do that, then, then, you know, anybody who listens, you know, general public, uh, lawmakers, all those type of people will know and understand what family medicine is. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, Absolutely. So, well, gosh, thank you so much. I mean, I know we're running over, but, you know, thanks thanks so much for having me on. I'm glad we finally got to, like, have our, you know, have our voices meet. <laughs> so now at exactly. least at some point, exactly. you know, we'll actually, like, our paths will cross. So, you know, yeah, there's... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we, we, I, I have to bring you back maybe before the, the dread of internship starts or something like that, because I, I know that we could probably spend another hour on, you know, specifically like uh, entrepreneurship, TEDx, NASA, all that kind of stuff. And Sure, uh, yeah. It's been so great talking with you today, Mike. Yeah, same here. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. So this is this has been an amazing experience, and thanks for putting up with my little hypomanic my, my little hypomanic uh, grandiose pronouncements a little bit. So. Oh no, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. I'll, I'll definitely follow up with you. And, and uh, you know, I know our paths will cross one of these days. And uh, uh, thank exactly. you so much for the time. And uh, have a great rest of the day. You too, sir. Okay. All right, kids. Uh, I will take a short break here because I need to catch my breath after that awesome conversation. So we will be right back here on the Family Medicine Rocks podcast. Don't go anywhere. We have a few more minutes left here, so uh, don't go anywhere. Family Medicine Rocks podcast on a Thursday here. My name is Mike Savilla. Go check out FamilyMedicineRocks.com. Thanks again uh, to Michael B. Moore for coming on the show here. Follow him on Twitter. I mean, he has some great tweets out there. Uh, and, yeah, as a medical student, has thousands and thousands of uh, Twitter followers. Go check him out, Michael B. Moore on, on Twitter. Uh, but just uh, in our closing moments, here, I, I do want to share a little bit about Match Day, and it's, it's been Match Week. And if you go to FamilyMedicineRocks.com, um, you'll see that I wrote a blog post uh, about it um, earlier this week, and just kind of, uh, you know, it's always nice to kind of reflect back on the past a little bit. And uh, you know, yeah, I remember my own match day back in the last century. 
<laughs> uh, I don't know, whatever. Uh, so it, 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 it is an exciting time, you know, to to uh, you know to to find out where you're going to be spending, you know, the next part of your uh, medical school, uh, next part of your medical training. Um, and uh, it, it was nice, uh, and it was a nice day, you know. What uh, you know, I, I went out there with uh, with my wife, and uh, we kind of found out uh, where we were going, and, and and just to kind of you know try to take back the curtain a little bit for people who don't know what this is. You know, Match Day is, is kind of the Super Bowl for uh, medical schools, and obviously it's a celebration. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of different ways that medical schools kind of observe Match Day. Um, and it is the day where medical students find out where they are going to spend their next few years of medical training, meeting residency. And, uh, you know, the ours was very simple. You know, uh, we, uh, we all got in our big auditorium and, uh, you know, we started uh, opening the envelopes of, uh, of where we were going to be going and, uh, um, at the designated time. And I think what we did was uh, we, we identified them one by one uh, randomly and uh, people came up and uh, uh, announced kind of the next person who was uh, uh, in, uh, uh, in the uh, you know, in the bin of envelopes and say, hey, you know, Bob's going to you know Akron General or Akron City or whatever. Uh, and uh, and it's nice. It, 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 it's a nice uh, a day to to kind of reflect back a little bit, to spend time with your friends, uh, and, and really hit you. Uh, you know, two or three months before graduation saying, hey, you know, this part of my medical training uh, is over and it's going to be time to move to something else. Uh, and it's a very, it's a very, for me, it was, it was a reflective time. And, and I think it will be for a lot of medical students. And you're going to see this happening tomorrow on Twitter. There's a lot of different hashtags out there that you can follow. Match 2013 is one of the hashtags that are out there. Uh, and, and what I've seen um, in the past few years is that medical medical schools have really, um, you know, taken this to the next step as far as from a social media standpoint. You're going to see this tomorrow. Uh, is that a lot of medical schools, you know, they are broadcasting their match day festivities live on the internet, uh, which is kind of cool to see. Um, a lot of them are doing video recordings and, and putting them on YouTube later. It's a huge marketing opportunity, not only for for medical schools, but but also uh, for residency programs as well. Uh, so that's kind of how I've seen Match Day kind of progress, you know, over the past few years, especially since it was my you know, Match Day. But it's always an exciting time, you know, the, the, when, as, as the spring comes uh, and as graduation happens in May or June or whenever it is. Uh, especially for me, it's always nice to kind of reflect back on, on, on where I've been and where I'm going, and maybe I'll be writing some blog posts about that as well. So, so best of luck to all the uh, all the people who are going to be following, uh, who are going to be uh, finding out their match tomorrow. Of course, the osteopathic or DO medical schools have already found out about that, and other early match people have already found out uh, where they're going. Uh, but best of luck to all the uh, medical students uh, out there who are going to be finding out or who have found out where they're going to be going uh, for residency, a very exciting time uh, for all of you. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping to get more medical students on the show here uh, to share their experiences uh, being a medical student and, and what's it like going through medical training uh, these days. Uh, so that, that ends my show here uh, today, uh, kids. Thank you so much to all those who uh, listened live uh, and also people who have uh, listened online 
uh, as well, and, and also who we're going to be downloading the uh, podcast at a later time. Uh, again, thanks to my guest, uh, Michael Moore, Michael B. Moore. Follow him on Twitter, Michael B. Moore, student at Pacific Northwest University of Health Sciences, uh, also a member of the U.S. Army. Uh, as as well. Thank you for your uh, service. I uh, very much appreciate that. Writer and blogger at Lancet Student, uh, and also on his resume, TEDx organizer uh, and uh, the NASA tweet-up guy. Uh, so very exciting. It's very cool. Uh, so, uh, hey, happy St. Patrick's Day. Uh, that's going to be coming up, I believe, this weekend, uh, and uh, probably uh, some exciting stuff going on on, on Twitter um, as well. Uh, check out my uh, website, uh, familymedicinerocks.com, and follow me on Twitter, uh, and Facebook and YouTube, and you can get all the uh, links at FamilyMedicineRocks.com. So that ends my show. Thanks again uh, for listening to the show. I appreciate it. Have a good week. Have a good weekend, and uh, we will talk to you all very soon. Have a good day, everybody. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway, and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.